Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Treks Through Time. I'm your host and Freightways Deputy Editor, Brielle Jekyll, and I'm here to tell you about some of the most interesting stories throughout history in transportation and freight. And again, I am here with Mary O'Connell, your fellow Freightways TV host and my current co-host. And today we are covering an interesting supply chain story that gives us an inside look into how an illegal supply chain works with threads into the legal territory as well. So we are actually talking bathtub gin and bootleggers during the prohibition. So hi, Mary. Thanks for coming on with me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, You know, there's nothing I love more than a good story about gin uh, other than a big glass of gin. So I'm very excited to get in today's. And per usual, I have some pretty dope fun facts to share with you at the end. Yeah, we really should have made some gin drinks for this, but it is in the afternoon during the work days. I guess we'll be like responsible adults and not drink while we're working. Yes, that's fine. (laughs) All right. So let's take a trip back to the tumultuous era of the prohibition in the United States. So from secret distilleries to creative loopholes, we'll explore the underbelly of a time when the nation went dry, but the thirst for alcohol remained unquenchable. So before we start, I just want to give a shout out to the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas, where we got a lot of our information from for this episode. So let's just get right into it. In 1920, the prohibition started at midnight on January 17th in 1920, after the 18th Amendment was ratified during the day or essentially the day before. Um, And that was also known as the Volstead Act. Because House Judiciary Committee Chairman Andrew Volstead managed the legislation, um, but it was a really long lead up to the actual start of the prohibition with the American Temperance Society beginning in 1826, which eventually led to the formation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in 1873, which actually was a really important group because they were pushing through for the stop um, of alcohol because they were trying to stop abuse from alcoholic husbands in the community. Uh, And unfortunately, that was pretty prevalent at the time. So additionally, we have Wayne Wheeler, who is the anti-saloon league. He he created that and kind of got the bowl really rolling uh, for the prohibition to actually go through. He really added to the fervor and other outside factors, really allowed the movement to gain support and A lot of disdain for the saloon grew until the amendment was uh, enacted. So afterwards, throughout the 1920s, amidst the bustling streets of Chicago's Little Italy, an unlikely group emerged as both the saviors and profiteers of a nation's quest for alcohol. So the Jenner Brothers gang, known for their notoriety, extended a helping hand to the needy by providing alk cookers, 
or, or stills really to craft homemade liquor. And so the operation was simple. They supplied corn, sugar, and yeast. And in return, their henchmen collected a handsome fee of $15 per day to oversee the production of gallons of alcohol. And it was a win-win situation because the gangsters ended up turning a hefty prep. I'm sorry, a hefty profit selling the liquor for $6 per gallon, and it only cost them 50 to 70 cents per gallon. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, gangster Frankie Yale was running a similar scheme in Brooklyn, highlighting the extent of this underground economy. I mean, honestly, that seems like a pretty good return on your investment. You just give someone the materials. They pay you and give you alcohol that you then sell to other people. Like, it's kind of... Exactly. And... The demand was very, very high since, you know, it was completely banned in the United States. And the Americans had really grown to love their alcohol by this time. Um, and I, I find this this part of time very interesting because I'm from outside of Atlantic City, which was really, really prevalent during their pro- prohibition. If you've ever seen uh, Boardwalk Empire, it's not too far off from what it was really like. So we have a lot of old history kind of leading down this area. So I always thought this was so interesting to me. One of the things that I want to see is, um, I'm sure there's not really like photographical evidence of it because of the time it was. I want to see what those like stores looked like if they kind of, I'm kind of picturing like the alcohol section the day before this act went into effect, looked like the toilet paper section at the beginning of the pandemic. That's kind of what I'm equating it to. Right. So there was... You know, alcohol, like I said, consumption was flourishing, but that also meant that production was flourishing in the United States. So that ended up being like a really big shift for people who, you know, own distilleries and, 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 you know, uh, breweries and things like that. Um, and of course, so small and big time illegal alcohol producers thrive during the prohibition. And a lot, a lot of mom and pops, uh, were bottling their own liquor at home using a small still to ferment a mash, which is the kind of, um, it's literally a a, a, like mash of ingredients that then makes the the alcohol by fermenting it. So it was a mash made from corn, sugar, or fruit, sometimes even potato peels to get a higher uh, proof of alcohol content. So they were really trying to find anything they had on hand that they could use to make alcohol. I kind of like it as the uh, early days composting, you know? Yeah, right. Well, I don't think uh, you would actually like it like it. Um, So they'd also mix it with glycerin and uh, a key ingredient, which was a touch of juniper oil as a flavoring. And then it was watered down by half. Um, And the bottles were usually way too tall for a kitchen sink. So the bathtub it was where they had to, you know, add this water. And for those gin fans like me and Mary, you know that the juniper berry is really what makes its famous gin flavor. And so the bathtub gin was born. I did see that they were also people who would make um, like different kinds of alcohol, like it was just a grain alcohol. Um, but gin was the most common because it was the most popular in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we would have thrived and with my grandparents as well. <laughs> All right. So uh, for uh, but the taste was really left. Uh, much to be desired, like I kind of alluded to before. Um, You know, so like this kind of crude alcohol distilling wasn't great for the taste. And so that's where the ingenious bartenders of the era came into um, really flourish. They mixed 
ounces of the questionable concoction with a variety of mixers to really mask the poorly made alcohol's flavor. So the cocktail, which did exist before the prohibition, but found new prominence during this era, really became a fashionable way to consume alcohol despite the ban. Um, you know, from the rum-infused mojito to the plethora of other creative concoctions, the speakeasies of the Prohibition really breathed life into the art of mixology. I am actually, um, first of all, who doesn't love a good mojito? I like them when they're like a little fruit-flavored. Um, but one of the things that I found when I was looking uh, preparing for this episode is a it's a gin drink and it's got honey lemon and a little bit of like sugar in it and you shake it up and that sounds delicious maybe not with gin from my bathtub but gin from a bottle i think it sounds delicious um i i'm like dying to create all new gin cocktails and i'm like thinking of them all in my head especially because my husband got into cocktail making this winter so he's like really great at that and now i just want to kind of do all these speakeasy uh type uh, recipes just with better gin. I love it. I absolutely love it. Just maybe keep it in bottles out and out of your bathtub. Right. So this actually leads me to a a, a confusing part of my research for me. Um, I I was conflicted because I am I love cocktails, I love bars, and I love history. So this is like I'm always researching and looking into this kind of stuff. So a while ago, I had visited friends in Denver, Colorado. Um, and I had learned at this really wonderful bar um, that was very extremely historically accurate. That's what they, they were very much into that. Um, and it was supposed to be set during the 1890s. It's called Union Lodge Number One, if anyone is interested, by the way. It's absolutely great. But they did tell me that themed speakeasies of, speakeasies of today are actually inaccurate, claiming that the mixed drink was made popular, um, you know, because speakeasies say that the mixed drink was made popular during uh, or invented during prohibition. Um, but they they said that this wasn't true and that the cocktail actually flourished during the 1890s and that ingredients were hard to come by for these fancy cocktails during the prohibition. So I was really kind of torn between what I had learned at this bar. And then I, you know, and I, I I've read literature about it. Um, and then this research that I showed now. Well, it turns out that both are actually true. According to NPR, the mixed drink first became popular in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, as bartenders were experimenting with different recipes. But in 1862, the first known bartender's guide written by Jerry Thomas uh, and throughout the rest of the 1860s really came the daiquiri, the martini, and the Manhattan, and all these recipes. Um, were I mean, they're obviously a lot different than they're known today. But yeah, they this all came about in the 1860s. So the mixed drink kind of was setting the stage pre-prohibition. And then as the prohibition hit, these recipes and the types of mixed drinks became even more popular. And the recipes shifted, new recipes were started, and a lot of these um, recipes took off and became a really important part of American culture. I am very grateful for that bartender in 1860 uh, because I uh, I love liquor, but I don't love it straight. I do love me a good mixed cocktail. Okay. So um, forever grateful to Jerry Thomas for uh, getting getting that together and experimenting and literally just writing down what he found out. That's called science, friends. Write down what you find out. 
Yeah, I mean, it was known as the first bartender's guide, so it's pretty cool. Um, That's kind of the start of mixology, you know, being written down and on record and getting all these recipes. So, um, yeah, I feel like we need to pour one out in his honor. And I mean, drink it, not pour it out. (laughs) Um, So as these new mixed drinks and cocktails prospered, the Prohibition Brewers attempts to enforce the Volstead Act nationwide ban on alcohol production and distribution really faced an uphill battle. Moonshiners and bootleggers across the country, from basements to remote hills and forests, they worked relentlessly to produce alcohol. They really pretty much rendered the authorities almost powerless. And uh, we all know that at this time, this is kind of where organized crime started to flourish. Um, But over the years, the borough confiscated thousands of stills, distilleries, and millions of gallons of alcohol, but it was like a drop in the ocean compared to the massive industry that was really brewing behind the scenes. But here's where the supply chain comes back into play. So grocery and hardware stores really played a a curious role in this saga because they were legally selling all the necessary ingredients for home distillers and beer brewers. So that included gallons, stills, bottles, malt syrup, corn sugar, hops, yeast, and so much more. So Americans really took full advantage of this loophole um, with estimates suggesting that they brewed a staggering 700 million gallons of homemade beer in 1929 alone. Uh, And chain grocery markets like Kroger and A&P offered malt syrup in cans, further fueling this massive movement. It was like a strange juxtaposition while the government was trying to curb alcohol consumption. Businesses were legally, completely legally, profiting and flourishing over the very materials needed to produce it. uh, And its supply chain was alive and well. They're better yet thriving. I absolutely love that because there's nothing I love more than, you know, we're not breaking the rules, but we just happen to be selling things that could be used to make alcohol, but it could also be used to do literally anything else. So, you know, that's capitalism at its finest. (laughs) Yeah, it was a really interesting time that kind of set the stage uh, for a complete change in American culture following this. Um, You know, a lot of things that we deal with today came from this time period. Um, And interesting, exemptions within the Volstead Act actually allowed some individuals to turn the law to their advantage not just a loophole. Uh, So Wayne Wheeler, he had to include certain loopholes to garner support for the law's passage. Otherwise, it wasn't going to happen. So licensed doctors, they could prescribe whiskey and other spirits as treatments for various ailments, leading to really lucrative trade in prescriptions. Uh, And then also wine for religious rituals and sacraments were also allowed to still be produced and distributed leading to some unexpected players in the bootlegging game. And as the government struggled to enforce this ban, winemaking at home really became an unexpected loophole. Families were allowed to produce up to 200 gallons of wine annually exclusively for their own use without taxation, which may led to a, a, a surge in home fermented wines and a related boom in the grape growing industry. I kind of wonder if after Prohibition ended, if these families that were growing wine at home, I wonder how many of them actually like turned it into like a full-fledged business and like that was the family business. I bet there's probably a fair amount of those. 
I'm sure I believe that there are quite a few uh, wineries that that have kind of got have have the roots it, uh, in this. Um, I um, remember when I visited Jack Daniels, they kind of had like that stall right. in um, in production during this. But then th- they um, I think were, they were trying to make. Um, like soap or something yeah yeah and someone made ice cream and i don't remember which one it is yeah and they were waiting in the wings just and then as soon as prohibition lifted they were back to just distilling whiskey and it was one of one of the coolest things um to see like the offices and stuff that were the same exact thing as they were back then during the prohibition while they were just waiting in the wings but um, so acreage dedicated to wine grapes in California exploded and prices for grapes skyrocketed. So it had inadvertently transformed the landscape of winemaking in America as well as its supply chain. So now we have this all blown grape industry exploding in the United States, which, like we said, led to, you know, the um, popularity of wineries today in the U.S., um, and then amid the chaos, racketeers really found creative ways to thrive. They manufactured alcohol by purchasing uh, closed breweries and distilleries, employing former employees to create illegal products. They also stole industrial grain alcohol and redistilled it, often with dangerous consequences, unfortunately. Industrial alcohol intended for non-consumable uses was poisoned to disturb to um, deter consumption, but yet bootleggers sought ways to purify it. This unfortunately resulted resulted in rot gut liquor, which poisoned thousands and tragically led to the death of around 50,000 drinkers throughout the entirety of the prohibition. Despite the challenges, the illegal alcohol industry really grew exponentially and speakeasies flourished, uh, and those willing to defy the law could find alcohol readily available. The underground economy economy became a force to be reckoned with. And even after the repeal of prohibition in 1933, its impact was deeply ingrained in the nation's history. Like we've been saying this entire episode. I've been I think I was I think when I was looking stuff up for this episode, I found that there was at one point in time during prohibition, something like 30,000 speakeasies just in New York City alone, which is absolutely insane. But I guess goes to show that like people are never going to not have alcohol. Exactly. (laughs) They will find ways around it. Um, So now we have a different way of showing off our fun facts this episode. Instead of just reading them to you, we are going to play a little game. So uh, this also comes from the Mob Museum and it's interactive. So I do not know the answers beforehand, uh, but we're going to text test our knowledge of bootlegging and the alcohol supply chain of the prohibition. So this might really show how them. we actually are i <laughs> well, i have complete faith in us um as pretty strong trivia champions myself obviously being the um the trivia champion I'm, out of the two of us you beat me in in an episode of uh, what the truck exactly. <laughs> and i find it very unfair because there was a lag in the audio uh-huh sure blame it on the leg there was <laughs> anyway i'm excited for this i think we'll do pretty well we'll see or we'll just prove um, that, you know, maybe I don't <laughs> All right. So what is the definition of bootlegging? Is it the uh, act of illegally making liquor to sell or use? Is it the act of transporting liquor to either sell or use? Or is it both? I want to say both. I think it's obviously both, to be honest. So we're starting off with a bang so far. 
bang, <laughs> the act of both illegally making and then transporting liquor to either sell or use is the correct definition of bootlegging. Perfect. All right. And although prohibition was repealed in 1933, how many states still have counties that forbid the sale of alcohol? I actually know this because it was one of my fun facts that I had looked up for this. And it's, oh, wait, it's 10 counties or 10 states or something. Because I was like, I'm going to, I like, I'm going to dazzle Brielle by saying there's still people you can't buy alcohol in. Um, Oh, honey, you wouldn't have dazzled me. There's a town right where my mom grew up that is (laughs) a completely dry town. Okay, well, a foreign concept to me over here. Uh, it's so bizarre. I still think it's so weird. And the town's, it's a super small beach town. It's called Ocean City, New Jersey. And it's just, it's like supposed to be very, you know, wholesome and stuff. There's a boardwalk or whatever, but there's just no bar. So you could just, it's like, it, the town's not big. So you just stop at the liquor store on the way into town. I don't know what the point was. Um, uh, yeah, so although uh, it was repealed in 1930, uh, 10 States still have counties that forbid the sale of alcohol. All right. And now how many approximately how many Americans per year are suspected of having died during prohibition due to drinking the tainted liquor? So I said 50,000 throughout the entire um, prohibition. But per year on average, do you think it was none, 500 or 1,000? On did prohibition last like five years? 10? No, no, 13 years. <laughs> oh, uh, whatever 50 divided by 13, 50,000 divided yeah. by 13. <laughs> okay, it's not that cut clean, but it is a thousand. <laughs> I'm so good but, at that. Anyway, <laughs> um, who were, what were supporters of the prohibition known as? Dries, party poopers, Carrie's ladies, uh, or the temperance teetotalers oh well you said something about temperance earlier although i like the carries ladies i guess i'm gonna have to say the temperance teetotalers yeah i would think that do you know where the term carries ladies comes from a girl named before I, her ladies what a girl named carrie and her ladies. there was a woman named carrie nation and she came to and she was really important in the in the wctu which was that um you know the women's christian a group that that fought against uh, the sale and production of alcohol. And she would actually, um, oh, she literally became popular because, or, or came to Providence, technically, because she um, would attack saloons with a hatchet. And it, yeah, and somehow, it, I mean, saloons ended up still being popular despite, you know, the threat of being, hatched it to death by this woman but uh, yeah i mean that's one way to get your point across no one is going to question a lady with a hatchet all right but i'm gonna go with the temperance teetotaler nope it's called they were called dries <laughs> i mean i would call them party poopers no i would too every party has pooper <laughs> um uh this group of 10 law enforcement agent, uh, agents were charged with enforcing prohibition and combating organized crime. What nickname were they given? Um, Federal Bureau of Intelligence, the FBI, uh, the Booze Busters, uh, U.S. <laughs> Department of Justice, or the Untouchables? I, I like Booze Busters, but for some reason, the Untouchables is like sticking out in my brain um, from one too many bourbon tours. <laughs> Right. And you would be correct. Um, this one I actually did 
like accidentally clicked the button to and I totally got it wrong. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it is the Untouchables. Um, The booth, you know, we all that better marketing ring to it. There's also that, I don't know how I didn't know this because of the movie, The Untouchables. Is that the same? What? Is that the same Untouchables? Yeah. Oh, I learned something new today. (laughs) At least the one from the 87. Um, all right. So next question. Which state openly never even enforced prohibition? Nevada, Maryland, or Vermont? I'm going to say Nevada because they were like out west and they just didn't care. And prostitution is legal there today. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Not that those two relate to each other, but that's my first that's my first guess. Well, I was just thinking like in terms <laughs> of the whole like something being illegal and that's then <laughs> was that inappropriate? <laughs> Uh, no, we're wrong. Oh, was it Maryland? It's, actually, it's Maryland. Oh, look at now you. Now I need to go back to Maryland. So, so there we have Ocean City, New Jersey, but Ocean City, Maryland is like crazy party town. And now I want to go back and see if they have any like prohibition, like history there. <laughs> All right. So what was the social movement against the consumption of alcoholic beverage called? Um, which... We, we do have an answer for this. I, we, we discussed it. But okay, so is it just say no? <laughs> Which is, is it from say no to drugs is yeah. the, from the 90s like there, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, alcoholism awareness, the temperance movement or prohibition? It's gonna, isn't the temperance movement? Yeah, it's the social movement they're asking. Yeah. So it's the temperance movement. Also, is DARE still around? Yes. Okay. Just I know this because I've seen the shirts out. All right. So which amendment repealed prohibition in the U.S.? The 23rd? The 19th, the 21st, or the 22nd? The 21st. It's the 21st. Yes, because you you now have to be 21 to drink, and it's the 21st amendment. I completely blanked on that, and I was like, and then I read the, and I was like, oh, the 21st amendment, done. (laughs) All right. And uh, which U.S. city did the Purple Gang operate out of? We didn't cover these in the episode, but we'll have to revisit the Purple purple Gang uh, another time. The Purple City. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it Detroit, Michigan? Chicago, Illinois? I was like, where did you get the Purple City from? (laughs) I'm just not reading this. Okay. Sorry. So is it Detroit, Chicago, New York, Kansas City? I'm going to say, I'm going to go wild. I'm going to say Kansas City. I think it's Detroit was my second guess. No, no, I think it's New York. And I'll tell you why after. No, it was Detroit. Damn. That was my second guess, man. I just chose Kansas seemed so wild that I had to do it. The Purple Gang was a a very prominent bootlegger gang, um, but they were predominantly made of Jewish gangsters. So I like to think of um, Tom Hardy in the. Okay. Oh my God. What is the name of my favorite show? Okay, anyway. Uh, it's Picky Blinders. All right. We got to wrap this up. Um, all right. Uh, I'm going to do our last question for today because we are running out of time. Um, bootleggers often enhance their engines of their getaway cars to escape law enforcement. And these vehicles were later raced against each other. True or false? True. Because Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights taught me about stock car racing. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love ending the episode with a rookie Bobby highlight. (laughs) 
All right, guys. Um, thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, this is a really interesting episode for me. I, like I said, love this stuff. Love some gin. Um, you can feel free to tune in uh, again for our next episode in two weeks. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jacob Brielle to see what else we have going on at FreightWaves Classics. And you can email me at bjacob at freightwaves.com um, and listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts.